0: That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Now back to the good part. Typically, the Boundary Corner podcast likes to stick to sports. It's what we know and what we love. But this issue isn't political in nature. It's a matter of the basic human right to life.
1: If you're saying it's horrible, an innocent black man was killed, but destroying property has to stop. Listen to that phrase and then say these words. It's horrible. The property is being destroyed, but killing innocent black men and women has to stop.
0: We stand in solidarity with the black community and wanting to put an end to systemic racism in the United States. If you want to do more, please consider a donation to an organization such as Equal Justice Initiative that's working hard every day in this fight. Please join me in observing a nine-second moment of silence in the memory of George Floyd.
1: Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. My name is Curtis Wilson.
0: I'm Brian Siegel. How's it going, buddy?
1: Well, buddy, you tell me. You had the old uh, college professor. Class ends at 830 on a Thursday night, and you're ready to go to the bar, and they're just uh, keep on uh, hanging out, keep on chatting.
0: Yeah, it it was one of those where he probably overplanned what he thought he could get in a class, and then he kind of got stuck. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, I got to get through this. We got a lab on Thursday, so here we are.
1: <laughs> One of those awesome things where 15 years ago you would have been like, itchy, like, dude, c- come on, I'm, I gotta go out and have some fun. Now it's, hey, hey, dude, come on, I got, I got a podcast to record.
0: Exactly, man. I, and I was sick this morning too. I'm already pulling, pulling a pretty long, uh, long day as it were, coming off a, a little bit of a stomach bug this morning, so definitely would have liked it to wrap up sooner than later but here we are running a little bit late but hey you do what you got to do right
1: 100 percent, man uh you have a good
0: weekend dude it was pretty good man it was pretty good we stuck around here um did a little this a little of that actually went over and hung out with the neighbors for a little while on sunday they uh they got one of the above ground pools put in their backyard so had the kids in there enjoying that and you know sipping the a few cocktails, having some brisket. So it was a good time. What about oh, you? Very
1: nice. Oh, this weekend. Oh, I, I worked my butt off this weekend. The father-in-law um, is putting, he wants electricity in his shed. Uh, and, and so be it. He, you know, he works out there. He he made us a picnic table. Him and my wife worked on that, but he needed a trench dug. Lucky for me. we got put on trench duty. <laughs> yeah. Trench duty. Lucky for me, his neighbor who's doing the electrical work was able to get a ditch witch, so the majority of it, they got cut with that. But the little crevices, about one o'clock, I'm cutting the grass Saturday, jamming to some music, having fun, ring-ring, Says my father-in-law, hey, what's up? I need you. All right, I'll be right over. And then subsequent part of the day Saturday, part of the day Sunday, I'm digging trenches with a pickaxe, shovels, post hole digger, so um, needless to say... I got some good workouts in this weekend. I had some cocktails with the neighbors. I'm on the cul-de-sac, a little Saturday night dinner club. and uh, But just a nice, normal weekend. I went to the liquor store, start reloading the liquor cabinet. All right, stocking up. Got it, to, uh, Rolling into summer, rolling into
0: uh, hopefully a uh, college football season. Got to stock up, get everything back as it needs to be, so... You know, somebody says they want a certain cocktail, you're ready to
1: roll. Absolutely, man. That's what it is. So, yeah, the thing with the COVID-19 crisis is I was starting to build the bar up back in uh, February and March. And then when it came, I hadn't been to the liquor store. But, you know, things are changing every day for the better, thank goodness. And uh, got there, got some uh, gin, some rum, and some uh, vodka got to go back and get definitely a few oh and some ginger beer was making um by the way got a new cocktail for you to try the southern fried moscow mule replace your lime juice with limeade very good cocktail okay all right buddy well yes sir it was (laughs) well let's get to it man in the last 11 days since sunday the Hokies have had three football commitments. So, man, let's get into there first before we get into a few other things. Let's start with the first one, which was the Friday that we dropped our podcast. We knew it was coming uh, with Jalen, but, you know, we, we, we just, you know, you got deadlines. You got to keep a schedule going. So we missed it. But We never- missed it, but we, 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 we knew it was coming
0: down the pike, and we were – you know, about as confident as one can be heading into into that recording session, but you never want to put something you know, the cart ahead of the horse as it is. Um so we kept that out last time and uh and here we are. Now we get to celebrate this go round. So uh We do man. I'll say it I'll say it, man. Brothers play for Virginia Tech.
1: Always have, always will. Jalen Strowman, six one to me, I think he should be classified as an athlete at 190 out of Patriot High School, Noakesville. Um, composite three-star, 247 has him three right on the verge of a four. Obviously, younger brother of um, Hokie great NFL guy, Greg Stroman. Um, it's a hell of a land, in-state player, keeps the brotherhoods going. And, Brian, you, you peeked his tape out. What are we getting in this guy?
0: So the big thing that we're going to talk about with is comparable. comparables. So
1: um,
0: he does not compare to Greg. He compares probably more to Terrell Edmonds than anybody else. Um, He's a versatile guy. He's a guy that is a natural safety but can play corner in a pinch. He's a guy that can fly around but also lay a thumping on you. So, I mean, I think just that size coming out of high school, I think, as you said, you know, composite three star, but he's going to, he's a guy that's trending closer to a four. If you look at the actual measurables and potentially, you know, a consensus four. but I think some of the competition uh, that he played in high school and things of that nature, some of the, the the more rivals in the ESPN are not giving him quite the look that I think a two, four, seven is. So I think that's probably one of the downsides of the, of the composite ranking here um, being a lot lower than what his, uh, two four seven score is I think ultimately two four seven he's gonna be kind of that tweener between a three and a four um and that that's probably where his actual skill level is um like I said he's he's a versatile player before you even talk about what he can do on the offensive side of the ball so it's nice to have another brother but it's also nice to get a guy like this and again another trend that we're seeing man versatile players on offense versatile players in the secondary on defense
1: you, yeah, you've mentioned it before, something Jay Ham, and it seems like that he's looking for is he wants guys that could possibly do multiple things, which to me, you know, some people say, well, get the guy that can do this the best. Well, when you're bringing in the versatile guys with where we are on the depth, you figure out in the first year, year and a half, oh, you know what, Jalen looks like he could be a great rover, but on the other hand, hey, wait a minute, man, he can press, he's got the body. Man, let's put him at let's put him at corner and let him physical some guys up. So really like that. But hey, Brian, the Hokies weren't done, buddy.
0: No, they were not. Uh, so second on the list, there we got a few days later Chance Black commitment.
1: Absolutely, Chance Blacks out of a uh, powerhouse down in South Carolina, Dorman, um, three star running back. But you look at his tape. Uh, he's like another one of your favorite uh, guys that's on the current roster, Blackshear. He is a OW. He is an offensive weapon. Um, a, a lot of folks kind of questioning, you see his speed, his versatility. How is he a three-star? And I felt like I've read somewhere, and Brian, quote me if I'm wrong, but he hasn't went to many camps. He's kind of not out there, not promoting himself. He's just kind of like, I'm playing football. I'm going to go yeah. through here. That's a big
0: thing, and especially when you're talking about a rivals rating, um, that's going to be lower if if they're not in those camps. Um, same with ESPN to a point. Um, also, ESPN is not; um, they don't update their rankings very often. So once you're kind of, you know, pigeonholed, unless you see some really big ups in your offer list, you're probably not going to see a significant bump in your ranking. Um. So, but yeah, looking at the tape, we're talking about a guy that looks similar to what what Blackshear is bringing to us. Um, you know, hopefully this year once he gets that waiver, I mean, you got a guy that can catch catch the ball in space. He can run routes, but he's also good between the tackles. He can, um, you know, make guys miss in the hole. He can make the linebacker miss and get to the next level. So th- these are all big things for us. And we're talking about a guy that can. You know, make some plays. We'll probably use him some in the Jet Sweep game, um, probably even early on in his career, even if he doesn't
1: uh, come out and have an everyday role. Yeah, I'm going to say the one thing, and I can't watch film like you. I don't have that eye. There are certain things I miss is just being a casual fan. But one thing that you do not miss on tape is this kid has some wheels, man. This guy has some speed. I'd love to see what he clocks. I'm guessing around in the 4-4. Four, four. Um, but what I noticed a lot was the cut. If you noticed – at least what i was noticing again, it's not my trained eye, Brian, but they were running some of those side zone plays. And that's what I call them. They're like a zone read, but it's essentially, he's staying parallel. And then as soon as a hole opens up cut. And when you see him make that cut, he's not afraid of contact numerous times on his film. Like there's a guy in front of him. He's like, all right, dude, boom. He does not shy away from that. When he sees his lane, he goes, so it tells me he's very, very, very good at reading the lanes, making decisions. Um and again, I'm still trying to figure out how he's a three star other so than not going to camp and kind of keeping a low profile.
0: Yeah, and it looks like what probably what you're talking about is something like a uh, an angle or an outside outside zone, so where the yeah. target is going to be a little bit wider than what you see with your inside zone, which is the common um element of a zone read offense. So you know, I think I think what like you're saying there, he's got the speed to get to the edge. But he can make you miss. He's got good wiggle, but he's got breakaway speed too. So I think he, you know he's got all those skills. Um, whether he's able to do all of that at an elite level is yet to be seen. But you know you got to love the skill set that he's bringing in. Absolutely. Um.
1: But Brian, we weren't done. Math-
0: we were not
1: done. No, we weren't. Matthias Carroll, weak side DN out of Gilman. That's a stretch. Pre- <laughs> pre- stretch. Gilman, pretty good high school football program up in Baltimore, Maryland. 6'3", 220. He commits Sunday. Um, and I gotta, I'm got. i going to go ahead. I want to shout this guy. Whoever did his video, that was crisp. And, uh, you know, this guy, again, three-star guy. Um, but you see the tape and you hear about some of the other things he does. I think he's a guy that could wind up a four if we play a season.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and looking at the tape, I mean, you know, he's he's really got some some good things he's bringing to the table. And it's really going right along with some of the things we've seen TNT start to focus on. You know, He's got both uh, height and and reach. He's quick off the ball. Um, He's got the ability to bend and work leverage, which probably comes from the wrestling background that he has. And as soon as I hear wrestling background, I'm thinking great leverage and really good conditioning. And that's two things you like to see in a defensive
1: end. 100%. Um, I also think – I think you think leverage. I also think tackling. You think the way these guys, when they practice, you know, and they're being taught wrestling, you have to learn how to get the guy down, right? I saw one of his video highlights. He literally, like, flipped the guy. So, But, again, he kind of has the whole – it's, you know, he's athletic. He's already got a good frame. He's already got a little weight on that frame. He can bend. He's a multi-sport athlete. You talk about the conditioning um, where you feel if he even puts on 20 pounds with that wrestling background, it's not going to take him long to get in playing shape at 240 versus Mm -hmm. gaining that weight and then trying to figure out how to play with it because essentially those guys have to cut weight like crazy and gain weight to make classes and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. um, You know, Eighteen offers, um, you know, Boston College, Louisville, Pitt, South Carolina, to name a few. But again, I'm seeing it more and more. Defensive ends, Brian, we're taking nobody's under six foot two. No, so, we're going with
0: we're going with length, and we're going with guys that have a quick first step off the ball, um, which I mean, kind of falls in line with what we've been talking about with kind of how we finished out the the 2020 class and kind of where recruiting's been trending ever since then.
1: Absolutely, man. So three big pickups um, a few weeks ago. People were nervous. Oh, God, we're going to be in the 70s again. Oh, God, we're going to be at the bottom of the ACC again. Ah, boop, boop, boop. 42 now, 43. We're uh, creeping up with some uh, very good prospects on the horizon If would potentially go the Hokies' way. All right. Yeah. I mean,
0: and the big thing, buddy, is that, you know, when you look at recruiting, you know, a lot of the people in front of us weren't just, you know, based on the the average score, weren't even ahead of us. Some of them were behind us, but they just had, you know, volume. Volume helps. And we're getting volume now. So volume is definitely um, finally working in our favor here with getting uh, three big pickups, um, you know, back to back, especially coming on the heels of the, the Jalen Jones rec- recruitment that happened just before our last episode. So pretty big stuff.
1: Very nice, and definitely trending upward. All right, hey, Brian, the boys are coming back to town, baby.
0: Yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. All right. Voluntary workouts can commence in Blacksburg. End of this week, that's what's starting. Strength and conditioning. Looks like they are playing it very safe with uh, small cohorts following very stringent public guidelines. I don't think me – You or any of our fans have probably any issues with that. Um, And then what Mark Rogers said just, and again, makes common sense. The first and foremost priority is the health and welfare of the student athletes. Um, But, Brian, something happened today. Um, I hope you caught it on the news. What's going to happen Friday? I did not catch it. What's happening Friday, buddy? We're going to phase two. Phase two.
0: All right. So everybody except for uh, for downtown
1: RVA and Nova, right? That's it. So uh, that kind of tells me that areas like the locker room, more common areas, um, probably the workout facilities itself are probably going to be opening sooner rather than later. Because if you've got to read the articles about what's going on, they're going to be doing these workouts in the Beamer Barn, which is a great thing to have. They can get the doors open, so you kind of have more of an open space than an indoor space um, to protect these kids. I'm sure there's, they're going to be getting the tests. Um, talking about 25 to 30 guys coming back, which uh, a lot of people are saying they think it's going to be the guys in Blacksburg. That makes sense. They're the easiest to access. They're the easiest to get the test. See if anybody has it. If so, quarantine them. And as the guys start coming back, get on the test. If you're clear, set a time frame for you to come on in. Yeah. Um, so I think getting the guys in the weight room is going to be quicker. Is going to happen sooner rather than later. It's just kind of common sense.
0: Yeah, and I think that's going to be a good thing for, for everyone involved. I know there's other schools that are working on similar timetables right now um whether it's a week ahead of us or a week behind us um i'm pretty i know pretty much no one was allowed until um yesterday june 1st was i guess the earliest that that anyone could do anything based on what the ncaa had in place but um now that we're starting to open up uh, some of these avenues for getting kids back in the weight room um i think most of it at least initially is going to be those voluntary type um, activities. And then we can maybe work towards some more organized or uh, quasi-organized activities once we start getting more guys back on campus and, uh, and the NCAA starts to evaluate what that's looking like. So,
1: yeah, I think that's going to be the big piece is probably really over the next three weeks is how the schools come back, how the schools, um, are doing it. And then I, I, I think what me and you, you've kind of stated, we've been kind of hitting around that is I think you're going to see two separate training periods. I think you're going to have a period in July, two or three weeks, and then potentially either a three week um, fall camp or a full fall camp. I think they're going to let the, I think they're going to open up some avenues to where it's going to be. I'm not going to say fair, um, but it's just going to be more, um, just more, just just smarter. Like mm-hmm. let the kids kind of build up to get there. They're normally working out all the time. They they've been doing this independently, but not around their strength and conditioning coaches. Something else, and you talk about the different situations. And Coach Fuente made a great point about this thing. Um, it's not a uniform situation. Every single place on in, in every single campus has different dynamics. There can be no one set way that it has to be done. And I think that's the truth, because um, I'm sure there are some schools that are flying more kids in than yep. others. So, um, but again, we've been talking about it. Signs are pointing to good things in the fall.
0: Yeah, and I think you want to set, you know, kind of a a benchmark, like a, a low end of like, this is what, minimally has to happen and then from within that decide how you want to approach it depending on your facilities and things that you can do on your own campus. Um, but like I said, it's just really good to finally get moving towards that. And as you stated about fall camp, um, you know, I, I think it would be good to do like a, maybe a 15 or 16 day, um, period with maybe two off days. Um, where you're working on installation and strength and conditioning as an organized team, and then maybe having a week or two break and then rolling back into a four week uh, fall camp before the season starts. That would, that to me would be an ideal situation because you could use those first two weeks for installation and kind of getting back into the swing of things before you start going, you know, hammering at each other in pads and, and fall camp. So
1: let me ask this, Brian, honest, honest assessment. If this happens this year, do you think there will be certain football programs that will push and say, "Hey, we think the beginning of July would be great for a two-week mini camp, along with spring practice"? Do you think this will be something that's pushed at the NCAA? And again, how tough would it would be for the NCAA to say uh, no when literally this is their one of their biggest cash cows?
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to see if that's something that they could put forward. Um, you know. There's been a large push for, and I don't know why, because it doesn't really apply to a lot of other sports. But then there's there's been such a large push with football for, kind of the month of June and July to be off limits, and the month of pretty pretty much the whole month of December, unless you're in a bowl, being off limits for, for these football type activities, um, whether it's got to do with exams or wanting to to you know provide some sort of buffer, but. It would be nice to finally move towards, essentially, the sport is year-round anyway. Yeah. Let's treat it like a
1: year-round sport. Yeah. I agree with you, man. All right. Well, guys, what we're going to be doing today is just a little something different. More NCAA holistic than Hokie focused. Um, a couple weeks ago, CBS Sports and their college football team put together a ranking of the top 65 coaches in Division One, along with Notre Dame. Um, Coach Fuente is clearly on there. Uh, we're going to discuss him in just a moment here. We're going to talk about name the CBS Sports Top Ten, but then we're going to name ours because clearly we don't agree with everything they say. So we're going to start out here with um, Coach Fuente's ranking, Brian. You saw it, I saw it. I'll go ahead and make the announcement. He was ranked thirty seven
0: boo <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: okay, Brian clearly, there is something upsetting you here. It's upsetting me too, but since you're booing over there, what exactly uh what do you think this man should be at all
0: right so i mean i don't I'm not calling him a top twenty five coach um, coming off of the twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen seasons that we had but but my man has not fallen out of the top 30. Okay. I'm going to put him, I'd say 28, 29 would be a fair ranking. So he's about eight to 10 positions lower than he should be, in my
1: opinion. All right. Okay. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think he's at 28. And you ready for it? I got this, I got the dissertation here. All right. Go for it. Bring it to me. Here are the coaches that are currently ahead of him that have no damn business being ahead of him. Chip Kelly. Cheers for it. (laughs) Chip Kelly, two years at UCLA. You know what his record is, Brian? Give it to me. 7-17. and
0: Yeah, I mean, at some point, what he did at Oregon can't count anymore, or at least not count as much as it is right now.
1: (laughs) All right, next, Lane Kiffin, Ole Miss. He's already left one D1 job. He got fired from another on a tarmac. Um, and he doesn't have exactly the best reputation in the world. So, how is he ranked ahead of a coach that is successful?
0: Um, he can make a Sunbelt team kind of decent.
1: Hmm, interesting. All right, next. You ready? <laughs> yeah. I like the guy's a human being. Good coach. Rough start. Scott Frost. He's 9 and 15 with Nebraska they had some players on that team and I know he's installing his culture there and he's in and he's in a pretty good conference but nine and 15 and you're going to put him ahead of our coach.
0: Yeah that's the problem I have I feel like those guys are getting way more benefit of the doubt for what they've done five years ago yet Fu is getting zero credit for what he's done in the whole five years he's been in Virginia Tech plus what he did before that they're pretty much saying well you had a you had one really bad season and one really bad recruiting
1: class. All right, we're dropping him. True. All right, next Herm. He's fifteen and eleven. Eh, you know he was seven and six his first year, and he was wait a second eight and five last year. Hold on. Um. Yeah. Uh, nah. Not. Not quite yet. I think Herm. You know, maybe he's the one people want to argue with me, but he's not exactly lighting the world on fire.
0: To his credit, he's trending upwards both in recruiting and with on the field product. But I don't think that denotes moving him to where he is on the list. I think I, I mean I think we need to still operate a little more cautiously until he's shown he can prove himself as a as a coach at that level. I mean, he's still establishing his own culture and what he likes to do, and I don't know if you know
1: this or not, but you play to win the game. (laughs) Love it, Brian. Love it. Ready for the next one? Yep. Mike Norvell, he needs to prove it. You're putting him above a coach at the D1-P5 level that essentially has won games, and you're sticking him ahead because he went to Florida State. Come on. Mike Norvell is a good coach, and he's probably going to succeed pretty well at Florida State but just to jump out of the gate and say, oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to really have a great pedigree if you're moving to a Power 5 school and you don't have a Power 5 resume as a head coach. And I don't think his previous resume quite justifies the jump just because he got hired to a Power 5 job. Yeah.
1: He essentially, in the credit Mike Norvell, he essentially walked into what Justin Fuente had built at Memphis, and he did build upon it. I'll give him that credit, but you're going to a whole different ballgame now. So yeah. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't mind him at like 35, but not ahead of Coach Fuente currently. All right, you ready for the next one? And this, right. this is one of my favorites. Tom Herman at Texas. With all that <laughs> bleeping talent, all that talent he's had, he is averaging the same number of wins our head coach is. How? He's had one ten win season. Wait a second, Coach Fuentes had one ten win season. Hold on.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like there's a some sort of curve here where if you coach for a blue blood program, by default that makes you at least five positions higher than what your actual ranking should be. All
1: right. All right. Next, Uh-oh. Bronco Mendenhall.
0: <laughs> he has been- <laughs> that, that's the controversial one that, that I think people oh. are going to be talking about a little
1: bit more well here's where it pisses me off he has played for like six times he's beat him once and literally he needed the greatest single performance in the UVA school history to do this and it's it's not even questionable if you look at Bryce Perkins performance in that game that was the greatest single performance of any player and you put him above and it's like Y'all, if we look at these two teams, yes, UVA was in shambles. Um, But, okay, how do you put him above a guy he can't beat without an unreal performance?
0: Yeah, and I mean, when we're talking about the big picture, we're still talking about consistently Virginia Tech outrecruits UVA. Consistently Virginia Tech has beaten a Bronco-coached UVA team um, relative to a Fuente-coached Virginia Tech team. So, at some point, that has to matter. It's like we're glossing over everything else because of recency bias.
1: Yeah, recency bias. Oh, man. All right. The last one I have, or the last two I have. I love Pitt, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern. He's won games there, but no coach in the top 25 should have a three and nine season. I love the guy. He's a hell of a coach, <laughs> but a coach in the top 25. Go look at all the other guys there, Brian. Nobody's ever had a three and nine season this far into their tenure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm with you on that.
1: You can't I, – I don't have a problem with dipping to maybe like a
0: five win or even maybe a four win if you had some really bad injuries on, on a year that you were already predicted to kind of be rebuilding anyway. But, you know, Virginia, Virginia Tech most years can, you know, just line up and get three wins without even really putting forth an effort. So it's it's really hard to go out and say three wins is impressive no matter who you're playing.
1: 100%. All right, and the last one, and this one just really irks the crap out of me, Matt Brown, who went from <laughs> – hold on. First of all, he was ranked 42 last year. He is now top 20 with a 7-6 and six record. Um, What? Like, I don't understand if you want to put him at 30 because he did do a very impressive performance, but also – Similar to Scott Satterfield, who I do admire, he essentially got to take over a team that had quit. If you have some motivation for some guys, you can get them to play hard, and they do have some talent in Carolina. You can win. To say a guy's going to jump twenty-two spots to the top twenty with a seven-and-six record.
0: Yeah, I mean, other than the the recruiting that we're talk that we'll talk about, I'm sure more, a little bit more at some other point. I mean, what has Mac done in you know the time he's been there that Fedora wasn't already doing before he lost the locker room?
1: Exactly, hundred percent, and that was the key. He lost the locker room, and um, here's the one thing that I'll say again: it's recency bias for you. What Coach Wente had to do is come in after a legend, and a legend that hadn't lost the locker room. Essentially, Frank just kind of lost his fastball, right? Yeah. yeah, he comes in and he starts winning. 19 games his first two years. He has that dip the third year to six. And, then yes, the Duke game happened. But I have a question, Brian. And this is why I do put Fuente about 28, you know, right on the cusp of the top 25. How many coaches below him or above him could go two and two in the crap that happened to that Duke game? And then you win six more games. And you lose three literally on the last possession of each of those games. How many coaches?
0: It's true, man. It's true.
1: It's very few that could
0: really turn that around. And, you know, you can credit or apply the credit to whoever you want to, but at some point Fuente was the man at the top that was making those decisions, whether you give more credit to, you know, Jerry Kill coming in or whether you give some adjustments to the way the offensive play calling was done after that, especially with placing um, Hooker in the starting lineup. Whatever you attribute it to, it still goes back to the man at the top making the call. So at some point he has to
1: get some credit for that. 100%. All right, so let's move on, Brian. Let's actually go through CBS Sports Top Ten. Just going to name them. You can, uh, if you want to make a comment, more than welcome to, because after we do that Top Ten, we're going to go back and forth with ours. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, maybe some controversy, maybe some uh, other things. All right, so let's start. Number 10. Ryan Day at Ohio State? Eh, It's not
0: horrible based on recruiting and winning, but I just, because of how great they recruit, I just don't know how great of a coach Ryan Day is yet. Um, I'd like to see what he does with, you know, it it won't happen, but I'd like to see what he would do with with less talent. (laughs) Gotcha. All
1: right. A couple of these guys, I think we mean you might be talking about. Penn State with James Franklin. Yep. All right. Uh, Eight is Florida with Dan Mullen. Um, Number seven, and this is one, to me, I wouldn't put this guy in the top 20 right now, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. That dude literally burnt down Florida State before he left it. Um, And and I think, unfortunately, Willie Taggart was not the type of coach to pick up those type pieces. And then he goes to Texas A&M, and he's done okay, but it ain't like he's in there winning 10-11 games, knocking off Nick, knocking off Coach O.
0: No, I mean, he's had a slight uptick in recruiting relative to his predecessor, and they're giving him a lot of credit for the fact that he won a natty at Florida State in 2013. Yep. That's pretty much it.
1: All right. Number six is uh, Kirby Smart at Georgia. Mm, nothing, nothing to say with that. Um, okay. Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. Um, I got Coach cool number four. <laughs> I, I got to try it. Lincoln Riley, three at Oklahoma. Dabo's number two at Clemson and number one, Nick Saban, Alabama. Top, top two should be no um, no secret here to most of our listeners, I would imagine. Well, let's hope not. Um, <laughs> top two for us, I, I, I have a feeling, may not be any different. So, um, well, Brian, since I made that announcement, sir, I'm going to let you uh, begin this with your number 10 coach. All right, I'm gonna lead off.
0: Um, I don't think he's in your top ten, but he's in mine. I, I kept Brian Kelly in the top ten. He's just just made the made the cut there. Um, biggest thing is, I mean, he played for a national championship. Um, had his team in a national championship when uh, with Notre Dame. Um, 243, 93 and two record as a head coach. He's had two AP Coach of the Year awards, um, three conference titles, and I still think. You know, they, they get good recruits, but I think he also, the, the product that's on the field, they do play pretty much on par, if not slightly below what they recruit every year. So it's not like some of those other Blue Bloods where you see, you know, a discrepancy between the recruiting ranking and the output, or like some of the other Blue Bloods that just are talent factories that just have – uh have recruit after recruit after recruit. They're not quite there anymore, but they're so consistent with their product. That's why I put him in there.
1: Got it. All right. My number 10 is probably going to be the biggest jumper. Um, This guy was in the uh, low 30s. But um, Dave Clawson, total record is 126 and 119. Not the most impressive, but he's coached. Here are the places he's coached, Brian. These places I'm really kind of, kind of don't care about sports in a way he's coached at Fordham University of Richmond Mm -hmm. Bowling Green and Wake Forest he has won at every single one of those stops and and I think that's why I have to put him so high he essentially has never got the opportunity to coach essentially even a high like a mid-level tier one program but the guy just wins, and he pulls upsets, and he beats people. And at Richmond, he's essentially created the team that won Mike London his national championship. And and at Wake last year, he won eight games at Wake. I mean, I, I see that guy and say, I could go put that guy on a field of a bunch of two- and one-star guys in any Power Five conference, and I guarantee you within a few years he produce
0: if you gave him a consistent top 25 recruiting class every year, he could do some damage. True.
1: Now, let me go back to your Brian Kelly point. Brian's just on the outside of me. Um, I think Brian's hit a ceiling. Um, I also think the one thing about Brian, he is kind of slow to make changes. And I think with the head coach, the one thing that can put these guys in the top 10 is not being afraid. And he's made a few changes over the last few years, but I think a couple of them are too late because I think he missed a big window. All right, do you want me to do number nine or should you lead again, sir? I'll let you lead this time. What you got? All right, man. So I think this guy's on your list, so I'll let you give the win-loss record a little later. But, dude, I love Dan Mullen down in Florida. Um, And it's, it's not only you talk about his offensive prowess when he was with Florida under Urban, but then, dude, how he molded Mississippi State to compete, not just play, compete in the SEC West with the talent he was getting there, that deserves an absolute tip of the cap. And then how quick he got to Florida, that program was kind of burning um, after um, after Jim McElwain left. He flipped it around, a ten win season, and then an eleven win season, um, competing quickly. You know, fought with Georgia, beat LSU a couple years ago. Um, fought LSU down in Baton Rouge, I believe, this year, and damn near got him. Um, but he just can coach, whether it's the top talent or it's the tier below talent. You play a Dan Mullen team, you better be prepared because that's the type of coach he is. Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, you said I, you thought I had
0: him in in the top ten. He was actually just missed my top ten. I was fighting between him and, uh, and uh, Brian Kelly. All right. So. Um, well, okay. and, and the only knock I have on him is that, you know, he's doing great things at Florida, but he's doing it, you know, with Florida rich talent, getting the best recruits, you know, from that area. They are the A school right now, especially with the, with Florida state being down in Miami, being middling at best. Mm-hmm. So they, they are, they are raking in the recruits down there. And um, I, I think that's definitely playing, playing into a factor. That may have shaded me as far as whether to put him or Brian Kelly in at 10, but, but that's where I went. So my nine is actually uh, exactly what CBS has, James Franklin. Uh, and, uh, all
1: right. Um, so Rick, <laughs> you must have done some research before the after the draft episode because you were kind of lower on him, and I told you I was higher on him. So did you do some digging? Yeah, so the big
0: thing that I looked at is I looked at what he did at Vandy. Okay. And that actually impressed me more because I I knew he had some good teams at Vandy. I didn't realize that they were bowl eligible in the SEC every year he coached there. Um, And he was going toe-to-toe. I looked at some of the individual games going toe-to-toe with some of the big dogs, um, you know, with severely lower, um, you know, talent at that point and he's shown that he can be an ace recruiter now that he's gotten some of the uh, you know the money behind him now that he's at Penn State so i think <laughs> you know you put those two things together you know he can coach and now you know he can recruit um now you know at times he comes off either sleazy or cheesy <laughs> um <clears throat> all, all the easy words he, he he rhymes with those but uh and he could potentially take a, a a step off this list if he doesn't start getting some big wins against you know the Ohio states of the world, but um, because he is starting to get the recruits that aren't stacking up against OSU, but relative to what I think he is as a coach, he should start being able to to put them down um, from time to time. So I'd like to see them do
1: that with more consistency, or I might have to move him down. But for now, nine. Got it. Um, and he is um he's right outside for me too, and it's the big thing is he hasn't gotten the big wins. I know he he's beat Ohio State and he's beat them once, but it's not consistent. Um, But the other piece what I, I, I think where you talk about him becoming an ace recruiter is I think he's kind of overlooking dogs. And I think you got to still have dogs. And uh, I think that's why I put him just outside because I think stars matter to him a little more now. And mm-hmm. and there could be some guy he's that where he used to be like, oh, yeah, give me that guy. He's a football player where it's like, e- that e- I'll take the four star. He's a little more athletic. All right, so number eight, Brian, lead the way, sir. All right, number eight, I've got Kirby Smart. All right,
0: he is on my list. 44 and 12, 44 and 12 as a head coach. So he's, you know, smaller sample size than most of the guys that I'm going to have on my list here. But, you know, he was defensive coordinator when Bama became what Bama is. And he's shown aptitude as a head coach. They have been consistently competing for an SEC championship since he's been the head coach at, at Georgia. And, you know, he made a big run in the college football playoff. I mean, not many schools can say that. It's been such a limited club um, outside of Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama that any team that can make a deep run like that, you got to give them some respect. Um, you know, he does struggle a lot in big games, especially against, you know, really high-caliber high, high competition like a Clemson or a Bama. But I've liked what he's doing, and I like the trajectory that team's on.
1: Awesome. I've got him a little higher on my list, and I'll hit a few other points on that in a few minutes. Um, I got number eight. I got P.J. Fleck. And, you know, people can make fun of his row the boat, the way he dresses, some of the things he says, how he speaks. But, man, all that guy does is take programs and flip them from losing to winning really fast. He did it at Western Michigan. He's done it at Minnesota. He's starting to recruit better at Minnesota. And Brian, when I take a look at this guy and you talk about, uh, records, he's coached at Western Michigan and he's coached at Minnesota. They ain't the two biggest programs in the world. He's 53 and seven, or excuse me, 53 and 37. That's pretty impressive. And that's counting an 11 loss in his first year at Western Michigan when they were a dumpster fire, um, P.J. Fleck actually played in the NFL a couple of years. He was actually on the 49ers. Um, I have Madden 06. He's on that game. It's pretty funny. But Homer. I, 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 think guy, I think that guy understands how to build a culture. Another question for me is with Fleck, is Minnesota it? Does he choose to stay there and build it, knowing that what he's doing right now, if he does for the next 10 years, he'll never have to—he never has to worry about another job a day in his life. Or is there bigger fields out there? So, uh, P.J. Fleck at number eight for me.
0: All right. Well, I guess I'll let you go with uh, with your seven then?
1: Yep. Number seven, Kyle Whittingham with the Utah Utes, man. Mr. Consistent. Um, he has built Utah into a consistent Pac-12 contender since they essentially were taken in there. Um, it was so close last year so close to potentially breaking through the playoff wall. Um, his teams, they are they are not flashy. Uh, you know, a lot of running the ball. He has sort of adapted the last few years to run a little bit more spread. Um, but his defenses, man, you better be ready to play them because they are going to hit you, um, and they're going to hit you hard. So uh, be prepped on that. And I just mm-hmm. think he's been doing it so long. He's only had like three bad seasons in close to 15 years of coaching. So that's why I put him at number seven. Okay. Okay. I'm going a little bit of a different route, but kind
0: of the same idea at right. uh, At my seven. I'm going uh, Paul Crisp. All right. 71 and 35 as a head coach. Um. Two-time Big Ten Coach of the Year, um, the man has never missed a bowl since he's become a head coach. Um, and you know, the big thing for me is that he is the classic example, and similar to to Frank in a lot of ways, especially um, you know, peak Frank, not like really overplaying relative to the talent on your team. So you know, you look at him, and he's still on an upward trajectory right now, which is the big thing for me. So ten wins. Um he's had ten wins four of the last five seasons. And you know, this is a guy that is a you know a lifer at uh, at Madison, Wisconsin. So yeah, I think that's a that's a big thing because he knows the culture and he knows how to build off of it.
1: Absolutely. I'll add a few more things on Paul Chris in a little while. He's a little bit higher for me, Brian. <laughs> All right, who you got for uh number six? All right, number six, GP Gary Patterson. Woo! All right, that's a you brought Gary way up. Gary was like at the back end of the teams for uh, CBS. Go, what you got on Gary, man? Love Gary. All right, so one seventy two and seventy as
0: a head coach. When we think about tenure, you know, him and uh and Ferentz are the only two guys that have been at the same place since two thousand. <laughs> so he took he took over at uh, TCU in two thousand. Wow, and he's the model of consistency, man. I mean, he's only missed a bowl three years. In the twenty that he's been coaching as as a head coach, and uh, yeah, he's third on the fourth, third or fourth in, on the totem pole in turn of, in terms of recruiting the state talent, but he's consistently playing with or ahead of those other teams. Uh, Texas, <laughs> Texas A and M. I mean, A and ms really the only one that's that's consistently been ahead of them, um, and sometimes you know they've clipped them down. You know, Baylor's been up and down here and there, but TCU has been the model of consistency. They're consistently, you know, second or third in that uh, in that conference if they're not winning it. So you're, you're not going to look at them and see them in
1: the you know, fifth or sixth slot most years. Absolutely. A couple of years ago, remember, they got T, they, Oklahoma, or TCU got Oklahoma, then Oklahoma got them back in that championship game. Um, my number six, man, uh, he's a little lower on your list, he's a little higher on my list, Kirby Smart. Um, a, he's at his alma mater. So there's a feeling that Kirby's going to be there a long, long time. Um, and he took that was a very good program under Mark Ray. And he's taken him, you mentioned it, he's taken him to an elite power program pretty quick. It wasn't like a five or six year. It literally was one down, one okay year, boom. Um, it's, to me, that's kind of is a testament to the type of coach he is. He's a damn good recruiter. He's a damn good defensive mind. Um, And this year, we sort of saw him take a step in the offseason, in my opinion. He made some changes on that offense, and he went out and got Jamie Newman. I think we're going to see a slightly different Georgia offense this year, where I give credit to the head coach understanding the Saban model from 10 years ago isn't working to beat the elite teams anymore. You've got to mix it up offensively. So, I give him credit for that, man. All right. Is it my turn? It's your turn. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to take the next one. I got number five. I'll yeah. give it Coach O down on the bottom. <laughs> <and we'll>... Man, <laughs> if you've ever read and heard stories, people always revel about how Coach O is on the recruiting trail. He's just one of those guys that, you know, families, kids, just they're just drawn to. Um, his first tenure down at Old myth was just not good at all, but to the kind of guy, and you can kind of see it with how he coaches. You see him always running. They always show those pictures of him running around LSU's campus. He kept grinding, and he kept grinding. Um, And I kind of wonder a few years ago if USC, when they put him that interim label, if they felt like they missed. But I also sit here and think, I think Coach O, he went home, and he is a perfect culture fan down in the state of Louisiana down in the south um he also kind of realized last couple years similar to what Kirby's doing I got to change some things on offense and he did it last year brought in Joe Brady good lord that was a hell of an offense um so I got coach Joe Five right now
0: all right well I'm going to do a repeat of what you did a little bit earlier for my number 5 I've got Kyle Whittingham at number 5 oh okay and I've got him uh record 131 and 63. That's so impressive at Utah. <laughs> yes, it That's is. So impressive. <laughs> so he's only missed two bowls in 15 years. Um, and much like I was, you know, harping on, uh, on Gary Patterson, they, you know, moved from the Mountain West to the Pac-12, just like they moved, you know, Mountain West to the Big 12. Yeah. Never missed a beat. Not exactly ro- uh, located in a, what you would call a recruiting hotbed. No. Um, now, Utah does... Overachieve relative to some of their, um, you know, recruiting rankings in terms of the talent that comes out of that state, but you wouldn't necessarily call Utah the a recruiting hotbed, So yeah. definitely they overachieve in that that spot. And you know, this is a guy that spent most of his life coaching in Utah, so he knows the lay of the land and he knows how to find those diamonds in the rough. So I think he does a really good job with that. And he's also one of the coach, another coach that you know hyping this up a lot, but. Does a lot with a little. I mean, there's not a a whole lot that's attracting kids to play in Utah, but yet he's still out there getting it done, and he's you know in, of late seeing some an uh, upward trajectory, even relative to his success, you know, in those 15 years. So, absolutely, got got to love it. Do
1: love Coach Whittingham, and I don't think I mean I, I think he's there, and I don't think Utah's <laughs> ever going to let him go because you have that consistency, you just ride it, man. All right, Brian, who's your number uh, four?
0: All right, number four. We got, uh, this is going to be the smallest uh, resume, but probably the highest winning percentage we have on the list. Lincoln Riley. All right. Hey, guess what? 36 and six. We match on this one. Lincoln Riley's my four. Okay, okay. So what I like to call Lincoln Riley, we're going to call him the quarterback whisperer. Oh, okay. All right, so... This man's coached three years. He coached Baker, Kyler, and Jalen. They've all been drafted. Yes, they have. Two of them were drafted where, Curtis? 1-1. Uh, one, one. Yeah. Yeah, That that's, that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. And uh, he's molded them into a regular season force. They've lost three games in the regular season in his tenure. Uh, and they can really score some points, as evidenced by you know, the way they uh they run up the scores on a lot of those big twelve defenses and they're great at getting the most out of that offensive talent. They really do a good job of getting the ball to their playmakers and letting them make plays. It is imperative that he gets better against elite competition because they've made the playoffs three years, but they've lost all three years in the first round. So yeah. he needs to have some success against those uh high caliber teams, uh like Clemson, Ohio State and Bama. Yep. But I think that uh, he can take the next step if he keeps going. Uh, you know, this is a Mike Leach disciple, so you, you know that they're they're all about the offense and getting points on the board. So, I'd like to see what he can do next. But right now, I've got him at four based on those first dynamic three years he's had.
1: Uh, absolutely, I'm with you, man. He's probably the most innovative offensive mind in the college football game right now. Um, Also, he was stepping into some big shoes when um, Bob Stoops essentially, I mean, abruptly kind of retired, and then Lincoln was named, you know, head coach, because that was, remember, it wasn't like directly after, it was actually after, it was around spring when it happened, and it was just kind of like, oh, who's this young kid? Yeah, he's a really good OC, but man, Bob Stoops won a national championship, played for a few more, you know oh, this this is going to be – this could be bad. But he didn't. He continued to excel, and he's actually built on what Bob um, created there at Oklahoma in the uh, early 2000s when they had been down for quite some time since Switzer in the 80s. Um, but you make a couple points. You talk about the big games. He's got to get a comparable defense. If he gets one, watch out. But I also think he's got to grow. There are some games where they are up, you know, two, three touchdowns, and instead of where well, you sit there, hey, dude, gear it down a little bit. Gear it down, make that other defense work. And you see them quickly screw up, go three and out, and they're sled that other team back in. Or they can't stop the run. I remember sitting here watching the Kansas State game in the cave last year, and Kansas State literally ran through them like a hot knife through butter, just like we're going to run, touchdown, touchdown stop us but what that tells me is with him he's so focused on his offense it's probably why he's not three for me versus being four is he's got to learn that you're not just an offensive coach anymore you are the head coach give him credit he hired Alex Grinch hell of a defensive coordinator but is he going to take those steps when he's up 17 34 17 early third to hey let's make this a seven minute drive instead of scoring in three plays
0: Yeah, you got got to have a middle gear. Even when you're a tempo offense, you got to have a middle gear where you can say, okay, well, I don't need to use the whole clock, but I need to use a lot of it. and I need to start taking my time a little bit more. Um, Sure, go tempo when you get a big play, when you feel like you got them on their heels, but don't just go fast just to go fast.
1: Absolutely. All right, so we're in the top three here, Brian. I will do my number three sort of the um, shocker for some people probably. Dude, I got Paul Chris. man. You've already mentioned some of the stuff he's done earlier. And people are probably going to say that's really high for him. But the comparative talent he gets versus where he has to go against, against your Michigans, against Ohio State's, against Penn states and how he's done, I mean, it's insane. There is a huge talent disparity but he competes with those guys. And if you remember the big 10 championship last year, they came square out and punched Ohio state directly in the mouth Ohio state came back and won, but watching the first half of that game, you kind of thought, Holy crap, are, are they going to do this? Are they gonna-? they were reeling,
0: they were reeling. They had to really <laughs> gear up and, and figure out what they, what the Wisconsin was doing in order to overcome.
1: This. Oh, absolutely. And then uh, you said it earlier. Um, Paul is essentially a culture fit there. He, he's probably never going anywhere else. Um, he played quarterback for the Badgers in the 1980s. Um, as I think, if either if it wasn't right before, it was right after um, Barry Alvarez took over and sort of started molding that program into one of those programs of the last you know 25 years that really was built. Um, um, and the big thing for him, if he ever gets if he ever gets just slightly more talent, I think Paul Chris, you give him a couple top 15 recruiting classes with Jim Leonard as a defensive coordinator, man, Ohio State, Michigan, and freaking Penn State better hold their pants. Because, A, Chris is one of those guys, remember the Miami game, and he freaking ran the damn score up down in South Beach? Oh, yeah. I I don't think he cares. And I think he kind of likes it when some of those flashy big teams, he gets to put it on them.
0: And he and he's always going to bring that that hard nose attacking style with the, with the running game. So I mean, you know that they're going to be bringing that element to the game, and they're not going to step off of that nope. uh, just because you know the game's out of hand. They're going to they're going to keep coming at you. Absolutely. All right. Who's your three? Three. Big O. Oh. And or draw Okay. Yes, sir. Go Tigers. Uh, anyway. 56 and 36 uh, records, so not the most flashy um, record for the guys that are in the uh, the top 10 here. But what I'm going to point to is kind of the success story of, of his head coaching trajectory here. So completely failing at Ole Miss. Completely. He tried to implement that USC-style offense, and it just it, it wasn't happening, and they weren't stout enough on defense to overcome those offensive shortcomings, even with some of the talent they had, um, you know, two, two stints as a, uh, interim head coach with success, both times, six and two, six and two. And I'm going to answer the question for you. USC is absolutely kicking themselves for not hiring him as head coach <laughs> after that success as interim. Um, they, you know, you got a chance at LSU after after that second six and two stint as an interim, and LSU has reaped the benefits. He's been uh, thirty four and seven since he's took over in the last three years, and he's a coach that's really looked at himself in the mirror as he's as he's been going along, and made changes to his approach and made changes to his staff in order to attain the success that he wanted, and. Say, say what you will but i mean he's a likable guy yes, i mean he is. i don't think there's anybody that is more affable as a head coach in terms of being both you know someone you feel like you can have a beer with and be affable but
1: also a guy that really
0: knows his shit yep there there's really not a, a another model for that other than
1: Ed Orgeron at this point either. got you yep all right man well we have kind of reached the summit here so our top 2 and um i will let you lead number 2 sir
0: Again, this is probably no uh, surprise to folks here, but uh, at two, I've got Dabo Swinney. Uh, same. So one, 130 and 31 record. He's got, uh, obviously, two national titles at this point, six ACC titles, and three-time recipient of the Bear Bryant Award. He took Clemson from a middling team to a perennial challenger for the ACC and then perennial challenger for the national title. Um, earlier in his career, couldn't get over the hump, but, uh, he's shown that he can be adaptable, both in how he approaches offense and defense. And he's great on the recruiting trail. They consistently end up, uh, you know, pulling in, you know, top five classes. And that's, that's really been a sticky point. But the big thing is, is his ability to rally the support for the team around his vision. And that's what's really, I think, separated what he's done in the ACC versus where kind of everybody else is a giant step behind them Yeah, from the financial alignment and from the physical perspective that, that fan base carries um, both from their traveling and just, um, you know, the pride they show in their team, they become a national brand become because of that.
1: They absolutely are, man. Um, and I'm going to, say a couple things first of all a lot can be said about Dabo, but you cannot deny you kind of mentioned it he kind of took an affable program that had some history could always get some talent always kind of competitive and he just found some in the dirt there down in clemson um you mentioned about the financial piece and everybody's probably heard the story before Dabo got into coaching he was essentially in corporate um, in commercial real estate. so when you hear him talk about that money and how we do it if he's doing commercial real estate I think he probably saw how corporations were probably handling their assets and he probably went down to Clemson kind of like me and you talked about me in the corporate world and he said, you see that stadium over there we hit that rock we come down that hill there's 80,000 people that's how we bleep and make money you're gonna give me all the money." because if you do we're going to create something and he did create something and in my opinion he's created a second death star in college football because of where they're located you know down in the south but can kind of recruit nationally they got a very good school there small town he's putting guys into pros man um yeah and, and you got you got the combination of the academics and the um you know, the NFL stature that they have. Now that's, that's a big one, two punch. And one other piece, you talk about him getting good recruits, but only a couple times has he gotten the top class. Because I think the one thing he does that James Franklin needs to think about, he still goes out and gets some of those two and three star dogs, guys he sees that are just fighting for every inch. And he puts them on the team and almost kind of treats them the same as he does everybody else where it's, I have the two-star. I have the walk-on guy. Oh, he's the same as you, five-star. So uh, consensus, consensus number two.
0: There we go. There Dado we go. Sweeney.
1: Are you going to lead with the one? All right, I'll lead, man. I mean, there, there's, there's nobody else we've mentioned, so it's kind of <laughs> tough. Um, it's Nick Saban, and there's not even a question. You can love him, you can hate him, but you better respect him because this man can coach football. Nick has coached college football 24 years, Brian, between Toledo, Michigan State, LSU, and Alabama. He has won at every stop. He has six national titles. But the one thing I give him credit for more than anything is, especially over the last 10 years, he has learned how to adapt. You know he knows how to coach, he knows how to recruit. He's got to fire, but you know that man is cerebral. In my opinion, he's a top five all-time head coach. But the one other piece that I think um, that sometimes might get overlooked with Nick is he kind of had to reinvent himself after what happened to Miami. And he, he, he reinvented himself really to go back to more of the coaching because although every Bama player that gets drafted doesn't become a superstar, you don't find many of them that flame out they're usually consistently good players. And I think that kind of tells me that when he went back to the college game, it was, I'm going to teach these guys how to play football. So when they walk in the NFL locker room, even if they aren't the star, they're going to be on a squad five or six years.
0: I've got him at one as well. We're consensus on, on two and one here. Record-wise, 243-65-1. <laughs> uh, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> 24 years
0: of head coaching. That's ridiculous. Um, eight SEC championships in twenty years, two Walter Camp trophies, four-time SEC Coach of the Year. I mean, at this point, he became like LeBron and MJ were, where they just got tired of giving him the trophy every year. So they're like, "Well, we got to give it to somebody else for now," because you know they've won it three years in a row or two years in a <laughs> row, and stuff like that. So I'm honestly surprised how long he stayed at Bama after every it goes back to the the reinvention point that you were talking about is that he wasn't really at any stop for longer than four years before this current stint at Alabama. And I think like I said it goes along with what you're saying about the reinventing. He's definitely changed his approach to the game. I think he really wants to build a program where it's about guys that end up having success after they leave Alabama. I think winning has been a byproduct of that, but he's trying to get the best guys in-house and coach them up so they can have success at the next level. Now, ultimately, that sometimes stung him because, you know, you've got a talented roster of guys that want to play and they can't all play at the same time. But sometimes that happens. But the thing that has always impressed me, and, and Curtis, we've talked about it a bunch of times, especially before the playoff was put into place, when he's got more than 10 days to prepare for you, oh, God, he is damn near unbeatable. He is. He is unbeatable.
1: <laughs> it's not even a joke, it, man. I mean, I mean, it's 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 crazy because you see he has all your little tricks and everything figured out when that happens. I mean, it's it's wild. And, you know, being Virginia Tech fan since he's been at Bama, we've seen him opening weekend twice. And, man you know, '09 9 we had him, but he got us in the end. 12, when we were not as talented, you could tell, you know, he was prepped for what we were going to do. It's, it's kind of unfathomable that, again, that's why I put about he's fiery. You see him scream at the sideline, he gets mad, but he's cerebral. And when he has a chance yeah. to look at what he can do to you over the course of a few weeks, he's going to figure it out. So on the other side, you better bring your A-plus because he's going to bring his and his boys are going to execute and you're probably not going to win.
0: Can we also talk about would any other head coach have had the balls to put Tua in in that national championship no, game? No,
1: no, no, <laughs> But he's been I can't think of got any got coach that. that would have had the balls to do that. And he's got the capital. You going to question him? <laughs> it's true. Question him. Awesome. All right, so guys, long episode here, I don't think me and you expected it to be over an hour, man, but uh
0: no we we ended up uh we we, we put in some time there, but well, you
1: know it's a lot of fun. You talk about where we have our coach rank, then we look at the top ten and we're talking about the attributes we see there it's It's a lot of fun to do something like this um so guys, what we're gonna ask you is have fun tomorrow when we- d- have fun today when we drop this. who are your top ten current and NCAA football coaches? You know, we'll we'll post hours out there. I'm sure that I'm sure I'll get flack for ten in a heartbeat from a few people, but you know it is what it is. (laughs) So, uh, who's the top ten NCAA football coaches going into 2020? Um, Tweet at us that, Brian. I think this is going to wrap up this episode of the uh, Boundary Corner Podcast. Yes, sir. Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook subscribe for the podcast on your favorite source including spotify and apple Podcasts. we always let our buddy jason long play us in play us out catch him on spotify and apple music thanks for listening and as always let's go okay